0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, as we enter into this passage this morning, continuing on in our sermon series, Redeemer encounters with Jesus. I want to make a confession about me, and I want to make a confession about you. So here's my confession about me. I need you to hear that I am an unbeliever. And here's my confession about you. I need you to hear that you are too. Now you might say to yourself, gosh, we showed up at the wrong church this morning if this guy, an unbeliever, is preaching. But truth of the matter is unbelief is the characteristic that marks all of us it's easy to kind of imagine the world in two brightly delineated spheres one full of unbelievers and one full of believers but the truth of the matter is that for all believers we wrestle with doubt We struggle with believing day in and day out. It is a constant part of the Christian life. This came home to me in a powerful way a few years ago. I was reading and I came upon this verse in Jeremiah chapter 2. It's verse 5 and it's become to me one of the most important verses in the formation of my life following Jesus. In it, the Lord says this through the prophet Jeremiah. Questioning the people of God, God says, What wrong did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me. They went after worthlessness and became worthless. Hear the Lord again. He says, What wrong did you find in me? What wrong did your fathers find in me? What error did you find in me? What lacking did you find in me? The Lord God is speaking to the people of Israel. He's getting ready to, in some ways, kind of build a case against them, calling them an adulterous people, a people that is filled with sin, and he grounds this accusation of their pervasive sin in one way primary source. And the source is that they seem to believe that they have found something lacking in the Lord. When I came upon this verse, I was in a season of my Christian walk where I had spent so much time desiring to look like Jesus desiring to follow His commands, desiring to depend upon Him, to have my heart and my affections shaped by Him. And yet I was in a constant place of discontentment because my life didn't look like I wanted it to. It didn't look how I desired it. To look, and and I was asking myself questions. Why? What was going on? Was it a a lack of discipline in my life? Was it a, a lack of desire in my life? Was it a lack of knowledge? And the answer was no, it was a lack of belief. You know, from the very beginning of creation, sin separation from God has sprung out of doubt. Adam and Eve in the garden after they've given a, been given a command by the Lord to eat of any tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When the tempter, the enemy, Satan, comes and tempts Eve, what does he do? He doesn't begin with a temptation of how beautiful and delicious the tree is. He doesn't even begin with temptation, kind of prompting and prodding at their pride. He begins by questioning the goodness of God. He says, in effect, did God really tell you you can't eat of any of these trees? And Eve responds, no, 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 we can can eat of any tree except for this one. And Satan responds essentially by saying, why would he do that? Maybe he's holding out on you. All sin, all separation from the Lord, all the areas of our life where we are not in union with Christ flows out of doubt where we have gotten the nature and character, sufficiency and goodness of our God wrong. Every Christian doubts. It's not an if. Honestly, it's not even a when. It's a what. What do you doubt about the Lord and why? And I want you to hear this from the beginning. If you do not deal with your doubt. And I don't mean doubt that starts here. Mental doubt. I mean doubt that resides here in your heart, in your deepest convictions. Because for most of us that sit here, we've reconciled our heads. We can proclaim that the Lord is all good, that He's all powerful, that His ways are always wise, that He is in control of all things, that we need Him in all areas. All of the truths that we just sang, we can say with our heads we believe, and yet The evidence of our lives show that the core of our hearts doubt again and again. And if you do not face those doubts, your walk as a believer, your relationship with the Lord, the joy that you find in this life will always be hindered. Today, the gospel writer Mark He writes for us an account, an encounter with Jesus that is full of doubters. Here's what he will show us today. First, the landscape of our doubt, the landscape of our doubt. Second, Mark points us to the direction of our doubt, the direction of our doubt. And finally, Mark gives us, from the words of Jesus, a prescription for our doubt. The landscape of our doubt, the direction of our doubt, and the prescription of our doubt. First, the landscape. Mark begins the story, saying in verse 14, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes were arguing with them. Verse 14 is the bridge that carries over from the previous passage where Mark describes the events that occur on what we now call the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, had ascended this mountain. And at the top of this mountain, before the eyes of those three disciples, Jesus is transfigured. If you will, the curtain for just a moment is pulled back. Heaven invades earth and the disciples see Jesus as he truly is. We're told that his clothes are as bright and white as as no man could ever make them. He's shining and he's there with Elijah and Moses. The father speaks again and says, this is my beloved son, obey him. The disciples for a moment see clearly that Jesus is the son of God. But from that moment of clarity, that moment literally on the mountaintop of faith, Jesus and Peter, James, and John descend back to the dust and dirt of the earth. Back to the chaos of life lived amongst a broken humanity. And the scene that we are about to see playing out it doesn't take place where everything is clear. It doesn't take place where the curtain has been revealed, where faith is easy to see. It takes place where everything is confusing, where everything feels muddled, where life feels uncontrollable. Mark goes on and says this, Immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, They were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him, and they greeted him. And Jesus asked them, What are you arguing about with them? That would be the question to the Pharisees and the scribes arguing with his disciples. But the Pharisees and scribes don't answer. The disciples don't answer. Instead, Mark tells us, Someone from the crowd answered him. Teacher, he said. I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. But they were unable. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. This account here in Mark is also told in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke. Mark gives the greatest amount of details of all three, but all three of the accounts of this event after the Mount of Transfiguration with the argument between the disciples and the scribes and this boy with this unclean spirit, all of the accounts seem to center around this declaration of Jesus. "O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The, the original Greek of statement from Jesus kind of paints it in a picture as if Jesus is grieved when he says this. Like he's exhausted. He's saddened to have to say this. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long do I have to bear with this faithless people? You know, most of the commentators as I spent the last week researching and studying through the passage tend to kind of center their debate on the question of who is Jesus speaking to with this statement? Oh, faithless generation. Some would argue he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. The ones who seem to just follow Jesus around, not to learn or to worship, but to seek to condemn him. And some argue clearly Jesus was pointing to the disciples. Disciples who, while he was gone, failed to represent him. Failed to carry out his mission in the world. And others argue this must have been a declaration to the Father. Who we will see in just a few moments, Jesus himself reveals is lacking faith. So what's the question to who is Jesus speaking to? And I think the answer is yes. All of them. Because all of them are doubters. All of them have unbelief. Mark paints a wide picture of the forms and figures, the circumstances and situations that doubt occurs in. Look for a moment at the doubt of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is a doubt that is clear and openly expressed. They mock Jesus. They plot against Jesus. They seek to entrap Jesus in his words. They even are planning and plotting to destroy him. They doubt his claims They doubt his words. They doubt his intentions. And so where do their doubt, where does their doubt come from? I'd argue that their doubt comes from distance. The Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders are close enough to hear the words of Jesus. They're close enough to see the miracles of Jesus, but they are far enough away that they've never truly experienced Jesus. They've never been close enough to Jesus to need him. They've never come close enough to love him. See, faith requires proximity. Faith requires intimacy. If you stay far enough away from Jesus, you'll have no recourse but to doubt him, to doubt who he is, to doubt if he is good, to doubt what his will will have an impact on your life and how it will change your circumstances or change your life. When We lived in our, our last town as we were planting and pastoring a, a church there. Uh, there was uh, this great, it was a small town, but they had this great public pool. And, and in this public pool, they had kind of the, the deep end section and the lap pool, and then they had this great kiddie pool. But for whatever reason, whoever designed this kiddie pool that was kind of a zero entry pool with all these toys, put on to the side of it, a four-foot whirlpool that just went around and around and around and, like, sucked you down until you couldn't get up. I don't know who designed it. Uh, Someone that apparently didn't like the city or was really hoping for some lawsuits or something else. But as we started to go there with our kiddos, with our youngest kids, we would tell them all, you can play anywhere in the kiddie pool. Don't go into the whirlpool unless you're with mom or dad. Now, let me just give you a chance at a guess, where did they make a beeline for as soon as they got into the pool? No one answered. You guys must not know my kids. They went immediately towards the whirlpool. And so Rachel and I went over there and we said, hey, why don't you come in? We stood on the edge and we said, go ahead and go, go into the whirlpool. And our, our, our littles were like, oh, we're allowed to go in? We're allowed to go in? We're like, go ahead. And so we let them go in, and it just starts swirling around, and at first they're giggling, and then they're having fun, and they realize they can't touch, and then they try and get out, and they can't get out, and then their head starts to go a little, little, little under, and mom and dad grab them and pull them up. And we say to them, listen, this will pull you in, and at your size, you will not get away from it. I I need you to hear that the way that the Lord created all of creation centers on Him. He is a good and gracious, beautiful, cosmic whirlpool. If you get close enough to Him, He will draw you deeper and deeper and deeper in, and the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with that. And so they stood at a distance that was safe enough for them to ensure that they could condemn Jesus, but they wouldn't be drawn into him. The doubt of the Pharisees was a doubt of distance. The doubting of the disciples was a different type of doubting. The disciples had given their life into, if you will, the whirlpool of Jesus. They had tasted and seen his goodness. They had experienced his kindness, his grace, and his mercy. They had watched him perform miraculous works. They had been loved by Jesus, and they had grown to love him in return but they had also begun to grow wise in their own eyes. The doubt of the disciples was not a doubt of distance. The doubting of the disciples that had begun to creep in was whether or not they still intimately, desperately needed Jesus, moment by moment. The disciples had grown in their faith from the shores of the Sea of Galilee where they had been pulled off of their boats by Jesus. Jesus had lived with them and taught them, empowered them, even sent them out where they had done miraculous works, healed, preached boldly, cast out demons a number of times, but now, as they faced life, even challenges in life, it appears, as we will learn, that they had determined that they now knew how to do it. I remember teaching one of my kids how to ride a bicycle without uh, uh, training wheels. And uh, so we, we, we had him riding with the training wheels, and then we took them off, and I said, hey, listen, we're just going to, you're going to pedal. I'm going to run behind you. I'll grab the seat, and we're just, we're going to go, right? We're going to, we're going to, I'll hold you up. And, and we got like a foot, and the kid was like, all right, I'm ready. Let go, Dad. And I'm like, listen, let's just go a little bit. Let me hold you up, and, and just get your feel. No, 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 Dad, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's. Don't touch, Dad. Don't touch it. I got it. And I said, Okay. And they this is what happened. They 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 took their left foot and they put it up in the pedal and they fell down immediately. It didn't even like start to go forward. And I said to them, I said, Hey, it's okay. Let me help. I'm here for you. The disciples said to their heavenly father, I got this. I got it. Don't I don't need training wheels anymore, God. They had determined that they knew how to do this. And listen, before you start to chuckle at the disciples, we do this every day. Think of how much of your life is lived on autopilot. Think of how many decisions you make in a given day. Hundreds? Thousands on some days? And how many of those decisions do you stop before and say to your Heavenly Father, Tell me what is good. Tell me what is right. Tell me what is wise. Tell me what is of you. The disciples doubted that they needed Jesus intimately and desperately, and it led to this failure that they experienced. You know, our culture is increasingly trying to set itself up, quite honestly, to where we don't need the Lord. We push buttons, we pull levers, we enter in commands into a computer, and it does exactly what we want. The last church that Rachel and I planted was in a small town that was predominantly agricultural, surrounded on all sides by cornfields. I remember hearing stories, not of current generations of farmers, but of generations before, where they would plant seeds in the ground, and then you know what they would do? They would pray for rain they knew that they weren't in control. They knew that once the seed went in the ground, they could do nothing to make it come out. If it didn't rain, or if it didn't stop raining sometimes, if the temperature wasn't what it needed to be, then the crop that their life depended on wouldn't come up and bloom. And so they had no recourse but to depend on the Lord and say, God, would you make it rain? But like the disciples, we oftentimes doubt whether or not we need the Lord. And then there's one more character that doubts, and that is the doubt of the Father. The story continues in verse 20. After Jesus makes this proclamation about our faithless generation, it says, And they brought the boy to him, Jesus. And when the spirits saw Jesus... Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked tenderly to the father, How long has this been happening to him? And the father said, From childhood. It's often cast him into fire and water and to destroy him. But if you can do anything, if, if you can do anything, And help us. The doubt of the Father is, again, different from the scribes and different from the disciples. His doubt comes from pain. His doubt comes from fear. His doubt comes from the will of God, which he doesn't understand. See, at this point in time, disciples of a master like Jesus, uh, they weren't uh, junior varsity replicas. They weren't wannabe masters. Disciples of masters at this time were seen as extensions of the master. So when they spoke, it was as if the master was speaking. When they acted, it was as if the master was acting. And so when the father showed up with his son to have him healed by Jesus, and Jesus wasn't there, but some stepped forward and said, we are disciples of Jesus. Then the father expected that if the master could heal his son, then the disciples would heal his son. But this father In a time of desperation, after watching his beloved child, we are told, from birth suffer. Brings his son to Jesus for healing, and the disciples of Jesus can do nothing. Why? If Jesus were able, would his disciples not be able? Why? Why? When the Father came to Jesus, was Jesus not there? Why was his son still afflicted and no better? These questions, you can imagine, start to swirl around in the mind of the Father, and they begin to shape doubts in his mind and heart about the nature of Jesus, about the character of Jesus about the power of Jesus, maybe even the goodness of Jesus. I've mentioned to some of you guys a story that took place that had honestly has been a, a defining story in my relationship with the Lord. It took place a little over 10 years ago. My wife and I had uh, two kiddos at the time, two little boys, and Robert and Monica uh, started the adoption process to adopt some beautiful kiddos from Ghana, a country in West Africa. And unbeknownst to me, who was opposed to the idea of adopting when we had two small kids, one of them being less than a year old. My wife had done this really subversive thing where she prayed to the Lord and asked him to change my heart. And so we spent this time with Robert and Monica. We'd go over there for coffee, and they'd give us updates on the kiddos, and they'd show us pictures. And we started seeing this one little girl in all these different pictures of the orphanage where Robert and Monica were adopting. This little girl's name was Clara. She was five. And so finally one day I came to Rachel and I said, listen, I'm gonna say something crazy. I think maybe we should adopt. And Rachel confessed her subversiveness to me. And and so we we celebrated and we told Robert and Monica and we said, listen, uh, the Lord's calling us to adopt this little girl. And we we started reaching out to, to family and friends, and, and we said, hey, listen, we're going to adopt this five-year-old little girl from Africa, and we got this unequivocal, resounding, like unanimous response from everybody. What? You, you have a six-month-old. Are, are you out of your mind? And, and we said, listen, yes, but the Lord has called us to adopt this little girl. She's our daughter. And so uh, a, a month or two later, Robert and I traveled over to Ghana and I got to spend time with her, uh, about a week with her. We spent time and just fell in love with her all the more. And then a few months later, Rachel flew over to Ghana and spent about a week with her and, and learned all of her quirks. And she had a lot. Um, and then we waited. And we waited and we waited and it took forever. And we waited and we waited. And then it seemed like the time was finally drawing near where the adoption would be completed and we could go over and get her. And we got a call from the orphanage and said, it's not going to happen. There's a relative of hers that showed up. They don't want her adopted out of the orphanage. And it's a long story, and I can go into it with you. But for the next few months, we retained just the slightest hope. And we spent so many hours on our face before the Lord saying, Bring her home. Just bring her home. You said she was our daughter. Bring her home. And he didn't. And it was in the same season that I became an elder at the source church. And it was my role and responsibility to not just pastor shepherd myself for my wife but an entire church alongside of Robert. And I had to pray for people and I had to remind people of the goodness of God and I struggled to believe it. Before this it it felt like my faith was a, a snow globe that had sat still. On a table. You could see all of the landscape, the cottages and the rolling hills at the bottom. And then in a moment it had been like in my mind and heart the snow globe had been so shaken up you could see nothing but a cloud of white. And I said to the Lord, I don't understand what you are doing. And he never gave us a neat and tidy answer that said, oh, don't worry, here's why I'm doing this, and here's why I did this. Instead, he allowed us to wrestle with doubt. I don't know why you doubt, but I know that you doubt. All believers do. Doubt comes in various shapes and sizes. And it occurs in various seasons and circumstances. And if you're sitting here going, I I don't doubt. I just don't. Do you sin? Then you doubt. Do you need control in your life? It's because you doubt. Do you depend on yourself rather than the Lord? It's because you doubt. Do you fear or are you anxious? Do you deal with stress and worry? Do you look to other people for approval and affirmation and validation? Do you lack joy or contentment? It's because you doubt. The important question is not whether or not you doubt. The important question is where you go with your doubt. Look at what happens next, the direction of our doubt. The Father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus hears the doubt from the Father and seems to rebuke him. Honestly, this, this feels harsh. This Father is hurting. Desperate. And he hears maybe from a neighbor or from a passing crowd that that, that teacher, that rabbi, that, that one that they're calling might be the Messiah. The one that heals, he's here. So the father grabs his son and says, this man, if anyone can heal you, this man can heal you. And he shows up to the crowd and he says, where's the teacher? Where's the teacher? And they say, he's not here. For a minute, his his hope starts to diminish. And then one of the disciples steps forward and says, where are his disciples? What do you need? And he says, please, please heal him. He suffered for so long, and I don't know how much longer he'll live through this. And the disciples say, don't worry. We've cast out many demons like this before. And they try and they try and they try, and nothing happens. And then in a moment of doubt, when Jesus finally comes down, he he looks at Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, can you please help us? And Jesus' response is, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. What is Jesus doing here? Well, he's not being cold-hearted. He's not being distant or removed. He's not annoyed or frustrated. Isaiah 42, verse 3, has this beautiful declaration about our God. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He is tender. He is so tender. And he so loves us. That if we belong to him. He will be constantly working in us. And for us. He will be revealing our hearts. He will be revealing Who he truly is. And he will not leave us alone. While we see him incorrectly. And so Jesus being gracious and kind says to the father. No, 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 no. Not if. There is no if with me. There is only if in you. So how does the father respond? Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, yes, help my unbelief. No, 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 no. If you were a pragmatic friend of this father, and you just heard Jesus say something that sounds like, if you only believe, I will heal him. You hear the father say, I believe, and you think, yes, excellent. That's exactly what you need to say. And then the father confesses to Jesus. But I doubt. I do believe, but I am so filled with unbelief. And you can almost feel the crowd saying, what is he doing? Just tell him you believe. Why would you confess your doubt to him? What will he do now? Will he heal the boy now that he has proclaimed to Jesus that he doesn't fully believe? And as it turns out, the father actually knows Jesus really well. Because heal his son is exactly what Jesus does. See, the thing that we must do with our doubt is bring it To Jesus. Or or, or to put it another way, we must doubt towards Him. So often we think of our doubt as something that removes us from Him. Our doubt is something to be hidden, it's to be explained away. And it's clear within Scripture that our doubt is meant to move us towards Him. Not just here in the pages as Mark describes this father, but think of John the Baptist. As he sits in prison, waiting his execution, the man that knew Jesus from in some ways before his birth had grown up knowing Jesus, had paved the way Jesus had declared was the greatest amongst all men. Him, in his time of need and desperation, began to doubt. And so what did he do? He couldn't get to Jesus, so he sent his disciples to Jesus saying, please, remind me, are you the one? Because right now it doesn't look like it. Or Thomas, the disciple, when Jesus shows up to all the other disciples after the resurrection, they say to Thomas, Jesus was here. We felt his body. He's back. He's alive. And surrounded by a bunch of good believers, Thomas says, I can't believe it until I see him and touch it for myself. And so what does Jesus do? Does Jesus show up and he say to Thomas, listen, you either believe without touching or you don't believe at all. No, he moves towards him and he says, Thomas, go ahead. Even at the great commission, as Jesus stands before the disciples, we are told they worshiped and some doubted. They're about to be sent out as representatives. And the only way that Matthew would know that some doubted was either he was the one doubting, and he decides to describe it for all the world to know, or people in the midst of the commission of Jesus vocalized the fact that they were still wrestling with doubt. Doubt is meant to move us towards Jesus. We must bring our doubt to him. And as we do so, Jesus gives us the prescription for our doubt. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible. And the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. And then it says that when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, you mute and deaf spirit. I command you, come out and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out of the boy. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most said, he is dead. But Jesus, he took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And then Mark ends the story this way. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind can be driven out by nothing but prayer. After this incredible scene, this miraculous healing, Jesus takes the disciples privately into some nearby house and they begin to ask him, Jesus, what what went wrong? What what happened? Why why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus gives them an incredibly simple, and my guess is shocking answer to them. Because you didn't pray. Why couldn't we cast him out? Jesus, did did we say the the wrong words? Did we get the the formula out of order? Did, Did we use the wrong technique? Was it that we didn't believe enough? And Jesus says, no. It's that you didn't pray. You didn't call out to me. You didn't seek for me. You didn't go to the Lord. That's why. Now listen, this this scene was not an insignificant one. And the issue arising from the disciples' failure was not small. Jesus was gone for a small amount of time. And in that small amount of time, without him physically there, the mission of Jesus seems to come to a screeching halt. The enemy seems to conquer the disciples of Jesus. And so what in the world is going to happen when Jesus, after his death and resurrection, ascends to the right hand of the Father? What is going to happen when the disciples are commissioned to be the leaders that carry out the good news of the gospel and see out the expansion of the kingdom? What's going to happen when Jesus isn't physically with them next time? And not just for the disciples. What about for us that have never Physically stood next to Jesus. What of us who have never heard words come from his mouth. What of us who have never stood next to him. While he has performed a miracle. See Mark the gospel writer is writing to a group of Christians in Rome. Christians who had never been to the Holy Land, likely. Christians that had never seen Jesus face to face. Christians who were already enduring persecution and within a few years would endure suffering that you and I cannot even begin to fathom. And so it would be natural for them to ask the question, what are we to do? When we face difficulty, what are we to do? How are we to have confidence in the victory of Jesus when he's not with us? Are we going to fail and fall apart and be left to our own devices and weakness and overcome by the world and the enemy? And Mark, through the words of Jesus, says no because prayer. Prayer for all is meant to be like a long walk face to face with Jesus. Prayer is like a child calling in his mom and dad into his room at night because he's having nightmares. Prayer is being cheered and cared for and comforted and loved by the caretaker of our soul face to face. Prayer is receiving wisdom and understanding from the creator and sustainer of the universe. Prayer is. The answer to what will happen when Jesus is not with us. And the answer is in and through prayer. By the power of the Spirit, he always is. Just like Jesus walked down off the mountain into the midst of the disciples' failure. When we go to the Lord in prayer. Though, yes, He is always with us, the Lord has designed prayer so that when we go to Him, it is like He comes more near, more powerfully close to us, ready to be exactly who He is for us, God Almighty, the all-sustaining provider, caretaker, and lover of our soul. We do not have less access to the power of Jesus than the disciples did back then. We do not have less access to the presence of Jesus like the disciples did back then. In fact, as those indwelled by His Spirit, with Jesus, the incarnate Word, seated at the right hand of the Father, constantly petitioning Him on our behalf with free and unfettered access to go boldly into the throne room of God the Father. We are surrounded by the presence of God. We are surrounded and upheld constantly by the power of God. And we access that most deeply, most intimately, and most profoundly through prayer. Let me end here. I'm a people watcher and a people reader by nature. Because of some things in my backstory, I feel safest, most in control when I believe I can assume, count on how people will respond in any given situation. Like, I I, I count a friend a friend when I really understand your humor. When I know the things that will make you laugh when I know the things that will make you cringe, and I understand your responses to different situations. The problem with this is it takes a long time to get there with people. You have to live with people for a long time. You have to spend a lot of time with people to really know them in a way Where you can go, I know how they're going to respond to that. I know how they're going to act, react, interact in this situation. How much more is it that way with the king of the universe? When we are not near him. When we are not in his presence. When we are not face to face with him. We are not speaking to him when we are not conscious of the ways that he is moving and working in our lives, doubt begins to bubble up further and further and further. And Jesus says to us, come to me again and again. See me again and again. Hear my words again and again. Yes, you have doubts. But I am gracious and kind, so come to me with them. Let's pray.